Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Welcome to episode number six of Breaking the Mold. I'm Evan Roth, your host, and I am thrilled to have here in the studio a familiar presence to those old timers uh, to the podcast, reprising his role from episode one as Evan Roth's brother. It's Dan Roth. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back in the studio. Now, I'll remind you that I actually have guest hosted since then. Oh, that's, yes. But it was over Skype. It might have been a little bit different feeling. I, you haven't been in the studio um, yes. since back in December of uh, 13, December of 13. And I love and, what you've done with this well, place, by the way. <laughs> totally redecorated. And you don't look like you've aged a day since then. How do you do it? What's your secret? Well, as uh, the listeners can see me rubbing uh, oil of Olay into my cheeks right now, I, every half hour <laughs> I do that, and uh, that's really what the the secret is. Oil of Olay. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it because the shininess, the beams that's coming off of your forehead right now. It's 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 the way you rub it. In. That <laughs> is that's really the Cir- secret. Circular, isosceles triangle. I think I've given up enough of my tips. All right. <laughs> um, so really, that's the end of the podcast. You've learned everything you need to know here on, uh, on Breaking the Mold. Um, we are uh, going to have a good show for you today. Dan and I are going to start by talking about the topic that has been dominating the Internet. It's the $19 billion purchase by Facebook of WhatsApp. And after our critique of that, which I think everyone will see is just a thinly veiled uh, envy of the fact that these uh, founders got super rich off of this. We're going to have a more wholesome discussion with our guest today, Dan Senor, another Dan. Dan's another one of those incredibly driven, multidisciplinary success stories. Uh, He's the kind of guy that Dan could win a gold medal at the Summer and Winter Olympics. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He was the foreign policy advisor to Mitt Romney. He's been an analyst at a hedge fund. He's just your normal blue-collar man. So we're going to spend a little bit of time figuring out what makes him tick. Let's start, Dan, talking about WhatsApp. First, let's um, make sure that everybody will bring the listeners up to speed here. Um... I have read a lot about WhatsApp, but I have not read uh, anything at all about how much Dookie is getting paid from this. Dookie, not not do, from the Budweiser commercials. Oh, WhatsApp! WhatsApp! Yeah. God, I can't. You know, it's a really. Yeah. I think it was a great purchase by Facebook. Yeah. Because that commercial. Yeah. Is exactly what they need to reach the. <laughs> People who are now 30, uh, 42 years old and remember that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge cohort. Yeah. And they will come to watch that commercial over and over again. And I can't believe that Facebook has decided to get rid of the entire news feed and replace it just with that commercial. <laughs> just with that. Running in, in a well, loop. it's. I'm not even sure it's it's the whole commercial. I think it's just they brought Dookie in to rep, you know he's Yo, Dookie. In, what's ah right. yeah with the tongue out. It's really it's yeah. Nineteen billion dollars seems like actually they got a you know got a steal. It for could that. have been a bargain. All right, for those those that um, you know see WhatsApp for a different purpose, it is a workaround from the traditional way of doing texting. For those that use the BlackBerry, also the same 42-year-old cohort that know who Dookie is, uh, have been using BlackBerry Messenger. It's just a way to kind of have an interaction 
interaction with somebody and not have to do it through texting. WhatsApp is used by 420 million users right now, much more heavily overseas than domestically. Um, and the company's only four years old, 55 employees, um, and Facebook is paying $19 billion. $4 billion of that is in cash, and $15 billion of it is in Facebook stock. $19 billion, just to give some perspective, makes WhatsApp bigger than Sony, American Airlines, Gap, that's based on market cap, and for the uh, market cap definition, that's the, the essentially the total value of its outstanding shares. It's a quick way of looking at the price tag on a company. Dan, $19 billion. Was WhatsApp more valuable than Sony American or Gap? Well, it's more valuable than Sony American or Gap to Facebook. WhatsApp helps them stop what is potentially an existential threat which is the youth moving away from using a newsfeed, using mobile in a very different way than the desktop world, and connecting with their networks not over Facebook or by putting together this social graph, but through their contacts. Yeah, but that sounds like it's a defensive move. But if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg describe it, it's an offensive move, which is that Facebook looks at this as a chance for them to be able to take already what is valuable at Facebook and just multiply it through the use of a more effective messaging service than what they're currently using. For a little bit of background, Google tried to pay $10 billion for the company a couple weeks before and wasn't successful at it. You wait two more weeks and you get $9 more billion once that race has started. And so if, if you're a Facebook user and you're saying, great, now I've got a messaging service kind of attached to this, sure, why not? I'll use Facebook more often. But if you're somebody who's a WhatsApp user where you've been promised I'm not going to see any ads, right? No chance, no ads. This is the whole value of it. You know, WhatsApp charges $1 per year, one buck, right? One buck per year. And they know they don't ever use any any advertisement. I'd be like, great, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Problem is going to be Facebook's not going to be comfortable that that's the, that's the business model. You can't ever justify $19 billion. So even though the founder of the company went out and made this massive press release and told other users, we're not going to change a thing about this, it has to change. And then I'm like, well, I don't need to use WhatsApp. There's going to be another app that I'll download that does the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right about the part of the part of the issue is switching costs become much easier right. in a case like this than they are in, than in a in a situation like Facebook where you've already built up the network and switching your network and building it up again is difficult. But I think that what Facebook gains here is a is the ability to look into the address books for, of all these nineteen uh, what was it four hundred million people. Growing, 420 million. 420 million. Growing, growing by a, a million a day. Yeah, exactly. And and so this is another billion person, another billion user um, company coming up. You know, <laughs> it will get there. Maybe there is no advertising. Maybe it's the kind of thing where they can use it to, to get them, hook them into other products. Maybe they build it into Facebook and there's no advertising on the Messenger feed, but there is advertising somewhere Facebook. else. I don't know what Facebook's going to do with it, but if you look at where the, the, the trends all show that people are moving away from, and this is true with the youth in America, and it's true with everybody overseas, especially in Asia, they don't use email anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're fully mobile. And getting them to start to open Facebook and use it is, is actually a challenge. It's like an on-ramp to Facebook. Absolutely. So all, But it's not on its own. So it's not a standalone value. It right. simply is a matter of enhancing the Facebook franchise. So, and then I guess maybe then you can kind of split hairs a little bit, right, to the whole, I'm not violating the culture and the ethos of, you know, you know, of not offering any advertising. 
There's an interesting backstory, by the way. The founder of WhatsApp is a um, uh, an immigrant from the Ukraine, and that grew up in the Ukraine until he was 16 years old. Came to the U.S. Um, dropped out of college to go work at Yahoo, but sort of grew up under kind of the Soviet, you know, Soviet watchful eye. And so I, I've heard that advertising to him is more than just, you know, the right business side. It's that it's core to kind of the things that he wants to, you know, he, he, he wants to offer because he doesn't want to reprise the fear that he had growing up. And he feels like advertisers that collect data simply are another form of, you know, Commu- you know, communist oppression. And whether that's true or not, there's something deeper than just, I don't want, I don't think this is good for my, for my users. It's something deeper to kind of who he is. Right. So don't you think that's going to clash? Mark Zuckerberg and the Facebook, you know, are not going to just kind of live with that as an acceptance when they've paid $19 billion. Well, I think that you pay $19 billion and then, I mean, he's, he gets a board seat, right? Yeah. Um, but he, this isn't his company anymore. He does hand it over. I mean, this is the way acquisitions work. So we'll, I, I don't think that that is necessarily entirely in his control. It's like when the when Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal, and there were all these rules that the Dow fam that the um, Bancroft family put on the, yeah. the journal, saying here's things you can't do. You know, within six months, all those rules were thrown out. It right. made no difference. It's, it was then uh, Murdoch's company. I don't think that Zuckerberg is necessarily playing in the same uh, waters, but the truth <sighs> is, when you buy a company, you can do with it what you want. Now, now the other part is is this acquisition of incredibly uh, talented mobile engineers. That is, don't discount how... There's 55 people at the company. It is small. It's $350 million per employee. employee. No, it's pretty insane. So so $19 million to acquire the... Let's say there's 53 engineer, 53 coders, and two founders... That's worth nineteen billion. Yeah, that's sure. Okay. No, the the but you know the other I tell you what the the where, where I where I have some hesitancy in in really digging into the numbers and saying this doesn't make any sense when you just look at the numbers is we did this with every single massive purchase in the last decade and and you look at something like uh, like Google buying YouTube, which was what was that? It was a billion dollar deal at the time. It yeah. seemed completely insane. None of the metrics made sense. Here were uh, videos that were that were user generated, you know, garbage. And what what could a why? How could you add? You could never advertise against it. What was the point of it? They paid way too much. Google could have done this themselves. Whatever it was, it turned out to be exactly the right move. That's exactly what people were searching for. It was. It looks cheap in comparison. Same thing with with Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, people were sharing photos, and they were building networks based on the sharing of photos. That's what the, that's what kids like to do. That's what they will grow up doing. And Zuckerberg saw that and came in and bought it and, and take a, took a a very tough competitor out yeah. of the water. I will say that that it, from a Wall Street perspective, um, the fact that that did work for Instagram, and he was. Um, was thought of at the time was overpaying for Instagram is that there the market is saying you know what he actually might be onto something because Facebook has actually the 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 price typically on during an acquisition right especially one which has used so much of Facebook stock the acquiring company stock price falls right because you as a shareholder of Facebook get diluted diluted for you urologists and philosophers out there simply means that you own the same amount, you own the same percentage of the company, but because there's been more shares outstanding, your dollars, the amount that actually you own of the earnings of the company decline just because there's been more stock that's been issued. And I'm sure plenty of urologists and philosophers now understand. Are there a lot dilution. of urologists listening? I was wondering, is it, that a huge it have is. you looked at the, the, the data for the podcast and it's, it's we we posted on urologists today. <laughs> 
um, just because it seems so relevant. As soon as you're looking at a prostate, you right. also want to know about kind of what's happening with WhatsApp. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's so smart. Genius. Yeah, yeah it is. It I is. would not be surprised to see this podcast get picked up by <laughs> Facebook soon with that kind of <laughs> incredible uh, thinking. That's really smart. It is. It is smart on that. So we will um, we will end it there because um, really the next next step is that Dan and I will be spending more more time kind of just collecting our dollars that are coming in from Facebook and, and yeah, the urologists out there. Um, and we will uh, be right back with uh, our, our interview with Dan Sino. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show or you can email us at btmshow at iCloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. We're at the interview section here where we are quite uh, pleased to be able to have Dan Senor. Dan, welcome to Breaking the Mold. Good to be with you guys. Well, it must be nice for you to finally be around celebrities interviewing you instead hey, you of know? Charlie Rose and everybody on Fox News. I'm, I'm also pleased to be put in the same sentence, have my name in the same sentence as Breaking the Mold. That sounds... <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. most people like You guys are Breaking that. the Mold. Well, we'll we'll break it together. All right, all right, we'll fine. break it together. <laughs> At the end of each show, we take a mold and we break it. All right, yes. great, the great. listeners get to hear it; they don't get to see it. But we'll sometimes post pictures excellent. on the website. <laughs> excellent, excellent. It's time lapse. Right, you right, see right. What it looks like, and then everything right. gets broken. Yeah, and then we're all married. Lachaim, Mazel Tov, Dan. Yeah. Let me run through your bio. Oh no. Yes. Like it's our a, mom. It's eclectic. It is. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Marsha Roth, mother of Daniel and Evan Roth. Was born in the same town as you were, Utica, New York. Wow. Mm-hmm. Then you grew up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Educated in Canada and Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. You worked your way up in politics into a meaningful foreign policy role, culminating in Iraq, where you were one of the first American civilians into Iraq after Saddam's fall. You were the spokesperson for the transitional government that was established there at the time. You've worked in finance as a banker at Carlisle and an analyst at the hedge fund Elliott Capital. You've written a New York Times best-selling book on Israel's economic success. You were Romney's foreign policy advisor. You were in line to be the next national security well, advisor. I don't know about that. I'm going with it. Speculation. Going with speculation. it. All right. Breathless in speculation. Line. In line doesn't yeah. necessarily mean you were in. You were going to take. Right. You were in line to be the next national security advisor of Romney Irwin. Just thinking about that resume sounds like you're 87 years old, mm-hmm. right? You're 42. Mm-hmm. Do you ever stop to think? Like, man, I've done a lot, or are you just wired to keep doing more? I mean, I've got a lot of interests. Uh, I don't, there's a lot I want to do, actually. I'm, I'm sort of the first time anyone's put that question to me. Uh, there's there's a lot I want to do. There's a lot I still want to do. I, I haven't really, I don't feel like I'm at the age where I stop and reflect and say, wow, mm-hmm. I've done a lot. Uh, a meaningful life. I'm ready to go to Palm Beach mm-hmm. and uh, you know play tennis and golf. So I, I, I guess the answer is no. I don't. I don't really think that. Hmm. How are you making the decisions about? Do you, when you make these, you you listen to this resume and the things you've done, and it seems like any one of those could have been a path that took you deeply into one of those areas, and instead you have kind of bounced between them all. Has there been a point? Is is that by design, or or is this something you just kind of take things as they come? To I've you? always been deeply interested in, for as long as I can remember, in politics and public service, uh, and that's something I grew up with. We can, we can talk about where that comes from, but I've always been deeply interested in politics and public service, 
and I've always had a sort of entrepreneurial business bug. So I've always I've always sort of had this enterprising interest as well. And I never really thought, well, I'll do this for a little while, then I'll do that for a little while, then I'll go back to this for a little while. I never thought of my life as sort of bouncing back and forth. But because I have these two interests, it's it's the way it's worked out. So, you know, immediately following, you know, college and studying in Israel, I went right into politics and, and right into government and did that for a number of years and had no and just expected to do that for a while. And then after doing it for, you know, six or seven years, I decided that I I had the business bug and I should go do something in business. And I didn't have a logical transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, well, the best transition is to go get an MBA. And so I went to business school and I got an MBA. And then that was a that was an easy transition into, you know, being recruited out of business school and going to do something in business. And then I thought, that was it. I'll do that for a while. And I had no plans to uproot myself, really. I thought I was going to settle into that for, for some time. I was at Carlisle, as Evan mentioned. And then the... Uh, the lead up to the Iraq war was building. Uh, this is, I guess, early 2003. And former colleagues of mine from Capitol Hill, from when I worked on the Hill in the 90s, who were now working in the Bush administration, uh, reached out to me about uh, taking on a position uh, during during the war and, and potentially after. But it was really focused on the on the period during the war in a, a civilian role. In the, in the region, but just to be based in Doha and Qatar, which is where the war was commandeered out of a place called uh, Camp Asalia, mm-hmm. which was the central command forward operating base in, in the region where Tommy Franks ran the, ran the war, to be based there on behalf of the Defense Department. And they, they told me two things. One, it would be a 90-day assignment, no more than 90 days. And two, you'll never step foot in Iraq. And uh, famous last words. And so I, I had felt that... Um, they believed in the roles of communications and policy that I had something to contribute. I felt that pe- many people were being asked to put their lives on hold with with far more far more grave you know stakes and and far more difficult circumstances than I was um, in service of this of this war. And, and it was a, partly this post nine eleven environment we were in. I just felt like if I was asked to do something or help out in some way, I should go do it. And so I went to speak to – I still remember my conversation with David Rubenstein at Carlisle when I was, was telling him that I felt that I needed to do this. I mean literally everyone at Carlisle thought I was crazy and, uh, and that I was going to take a leave and, 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 and go do this for three months. And, and of course, everyone cautioned me against it, including uh, professionally and including my mother. And, uh, and so I did it. But I thought it was just going to be for, like I said, a few months and then a few months turned into you know all in, something like 15 months. Um, and – I was not only in Qatar, but I was in Kuwait and and obviously Iraq for for uh, a number of months, and uh, and then I came back from Iraq when we had before you go there, David yeah. Rubens. What what did he say to you? He said, "You've got a great career ahead of you, and you're just settling in, and this is a great life and great opportunity for you, Carlisle. You sure you want to?" He was actually right in retrospect. I mean, I, I believe I made the right decision, but he. Um, but he he definitely believed that that there was that it was unlikely if I left for ninety days. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't such a clean. I'll just pop over there and then I'm going to pop back. Yeah, because he, he really believed that this was a longer. yeah that this was a a turn right. And um, because you can make the case it's maternity leave, but you know instead of being at home, you're going to go to Iraq, right? Right. He clearly saw things that you weren't appreciating about either the size of commitment that you were making 
or that there's something in you which was going to be sparked the public service passion, the need to yeah. your patriotism, the need to give back to your country by the moment that you got to cut So there was one guy at Carlisle who, I mean, everyone said I'd be crazy if I did do this, if I did take on this assignment with, with uh, the Department of Defense. Um, th- there was, out of everyone at Carlisle, there was the one person, he's since passed away, a guy named Richard Darman, Dick Darman, who was, yeah. dep- who was the OMB yeah. director on, in the first Bush administration. And uh, he's sort of a colorful guy, complicated guy, um, but he... I remember talking to him about it, and he said, "Every." I remember him saying to me, and he was a senior guy at Carlisle, and he said to me, "Everyone here is going to tell you that you're crazy, but you should go do it. It's you know, you're, hmm. you're asked by your country, particularly this moment we're in. I mean, keep in mind, it was yeah, this is early 2003, so right. um, it was. He said, "How you know? How can you say no? So, anyways, they were. I guess one could argue they were both right. Are you still on leave, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Keep extending, you know. Yeah. Right, so, so you come back, and yeah. and then the, uh, for a lot of people that would have been all right. Great. This is I'm now I'm now going to continue this career in civil service or in politics right. would have been a natural. But you, how are you making these decisions about what to do next? Is it your network bringing you around, telling, coming to you with ideas? Are you planning? Each of your next steps. I wish I could say I plan like this is a chessboard and I'm very yeah. calculating, thinking through it. It hasn't. Um, it would look that way reading the resume that I've got some grand plan. It's actually not. I would disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> so I come back from Iraq and I decided I had. I was needless to say a little burnt out. Both. I mean, from from not only from from being so involved front you know seeing firsthand the, the war and it was a sort of emotional roller coaster in of itself and people I'd work with were had been killed and that just it was a lot of you know it was quite emotional up ups and downs many ups but overall it was it was it was pretty intense and I also came back to the US so so we handed the, the United States government and the coalition provisional authority handed over sovereignty to the Iraqi government in June on June late June June 28th 2003 so Iraq was the Iraqi government was now in charge of their uh, of their destiny of their of their country of their sovereignty so we actually had to leave the civilian forces the civilian uh, officials had to leave and um, I came back to the US and it was I was sort of really taken aback because I was still working for DOD when I came back. I was taken aback by by something that I had been separated from while I was in Iraq, which was not the war but the politics of the war. So keep in mind, I, I'm over in Iraq for in, in Qatar all in 15 months, and I'm I'm totally disconnected from from U.S. domestic politics. I mean, totally. I come back summer. It's literally you know four months, five months before the presidential election, 2004. Uh, and Iraq is a huge issue in the war, in the in the campaign, and it's it's the I mean it's just it's a very political moment, and it's a politically charged subject. And um, I was I was not ready for it. I mean I just couldn't. It was mm. just difficult for mm-hmm. me to sort of wrap my hands around them. I, I was I was content and prepared to make the case for what we were doing and explaining it back in the U.S. Um, but there was just. It was it was the, the nature of the work back in the U.S. in Washington was far different from um, over. I remember one, my wife actually Campbell saying to me because she was over in Iraq at one point while I was there, and we were at some work related thing. This is in, you know, 
2000, late 2003, early 2004, and she said to me how she had been the White House correspondent for NBC, and she said to me how jarring it was coming over there because for the same reasons, inversely, the oh, politics were mm-hmm, so, like she mm-hmm. says, I come here and it's like so real for you guys. She's right. like, you're busy figuring out how to get like electrical systems in place and sewage systems and schools reopened and how to fight an insurgency. And right. she's like, you guys are like doing with like real stuff. Right. Like this isn't just like a debating society right. for you, you know, and you're not trying to score points. She said it was just so different from the discussion about Iraq that was going on back in the U.S. So circuitously, to get back to your question, I... I decided after being back for several months in the U.S. that I wanted to step away from um, from government for, for a while. And so I left DOD and uh, and then so like what I was what was I going to do? And I said, well, I'll go back to business. So at this at the time, I was actually start we, Campbell and I had just started to date and she was living up here in New York. And I started to you know spend a lot of time up here. And then some buddies of mine from business school had two opportunities. One with some buddies of mine from business school had started a uh, were wanting to start a little private equity fund, and so they approached me about doing this with them, and it allowed me to build the business, continue to be involved with some public policy debates I want to be involved with. Uh, I could write, uh, and uh, and then the other, and then soon after, I was approached by Google about a position um, in California in Mountain View that would have meant. Um, no, no chance for my relationship with Campbell getting more serious because I would have been over there and she was here. And so I did the – and the private equity enterprise we were starting was in Tribeca. It was perfect. So I did that for a while and then that led to another thing and another thing. But can I just – though, it's, it sounds in a very different you know, style but very much kind of how veterans feel when they try reentry back to the mm-hmm. U.S., which is every decision they make is colored by their experience. Yeah. And – it sounds like even for you at that time, I mean, the work you were doing was so impactful there, mm-hmm. right? Turning light bulbs, you know, and having them go on so that families could see what they were doing yeah. in Iraq. Working for Google, it, yeah. forget the Mountain View versus Tribeca dilemma. Right. Could you actually, like, work through whether that kind of work was the, the kind that you were going to pursue for other than just monetary purposes? Um, well, I will say this. I... I... I promised myself when I came back from Iraq, when I was at Carlisle, basically all I did was Carlisle. Um, It was just one of those jobs that you had to live and breathe. And I promised myself when I came back from Iraq that whatever I did next or after that or after that or after that, if 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 it wasn't in government, I still knew I always wanted to be involved in some way in these debates, these, these, you know, big battles of ideas about where the country's going and, mm. um, and, and a number of issues I care about relating to Israel and the Middle East. And so I, I knew that whatever sort of structure I had for my life, I guess that's the one thing I thought, you know, ahead about what I knew life would take me, you know, in different directions, but, but I always wanted to have like a mix of things mm. so I could mm-hmm. stay engaged in, in, um, if I were in a, in a money-making enterprise, I wanted to be set up in such a way that I, I felt either through the work I was doing or through work I was able to do outside of it that I was still feeling stimulated and rewarded on, mm-hmm. on the, in the areas you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that the, the coming back from Iraq, it was less the, the nature of the work as you're articulating it could never be meaningful again. What, was, what I found most shocking, I mean I remember to this day, um, is just the – the um, 
unbelievable normalcy of of daily life in America. I mean, that was what I, I just you know I I, I couldn't I, I don't know where how, you know I, I like I have two experiences that I remember vividly. One was being at a Starbucks. This is going to sound so absurd, but I was at a Starbucks in Washington. You know, like a week or two after I got back. And I'm in line. I'd ordered my whatever, uh, cappuccino or whatever. I'm in line and I'm waiting for the barista to make it. And the person before me, her order had been like wrongly, you know, it was what she ordered was not what she got. And she like blew her Lost lid. It. I yeah. mean, she's like, <laughs> I said skim, not soy, you know? And she's like, and she's going nuts, you know, screaming. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, this is where yeah. you're channeling your stress? Yeah. Like, don't, you know, I mean, that was... Or driving. That was the other thing. When I would drive, people would, you know, you'd sort of make a wrong turn. They'd be yelling and screaming, honking, people flipping out. I'd be like, really? That is what you are stressed out about. Were you, wow. Were you grounded in that way before Iraq? Would you have no. seen the... the no. No. No that, way. That had, you had to yeah, go through I don't think... But I don't blame people. I mean, I just think it's um, it's very hard. I mean, and, I mean, I, I you know, I... The, the answer is no. I don't think anybody can be. Um, I mean, maybe if you've dealt with you know, major tragedy over a sustained period of time. Or, but I, ju- I just think living the very comfortable American life that all three of us know well, um, it's very hard to to imagine living in with the stress level that you have to live with in in a place of turmoil. The the flip side of that is I was I didn't realize till I'd gotten back. People say to me all the time, "Oh my God, you were in." there for 15 months. It was a war and civil war and chaos. And, you know, um, you know, was it hard? I get that. It must have been hard. It must have been this. And the truth was, in the moment, it wasn't. Because the the human capacity to adapt in those mm-hmm. situations, yeah. that's what I realized, yeah. is that the, the human capacity to just sort of adjust to the new normal. So at first, it was odd, mm-hmm. to say the least, and unfamiliar. But your ability, particularly when you're young, I think I was young, uh, we're all young, but you know, I was sure. I was in my early thirties. Yeah. yeah, I I like I just kind of got through it, and so I was working this crazy schedule there, and I was on adrenaline the whole time, and um, you know, to the point that I had some you know ailments after that that were long lasting. I mean, all manageable because of just being your body kind of cranking to that stress for such a sustained for months and months and months, and. And yet while you're there, you don't realize that. You think it's like normal. So yeah. I would call my family from Baghdad, literally, and I'd just call to check in and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, how are you? Are you okay? And I literally— Until I, they asked the question, it hadn't even occurred I to just, you. I was just like, I was just calling to check in. <laughs> right, like, what's right. up? You know, and I, and I, and I, and I had like, was living my life there as though it was normal, and it wasn't. It was a, it was a crazy life, but you don't realize that until you get back. And would you say you still hold on to that same you, – you, you had the idea of whatever I do, I'm not going to do full time. I'm not going to give myself over to my company. I am going to have – be a varied, a person with varied interests and I'm going to stay in the public or, sector. Yes, or even if I'm in a business setting, I, I'm able to channel even depending on what business I choose, some of what yeah. some of what you're describing. And you also – by the way, you wind up thinking about a bunch of other things too. You start thinking about you know, family and kids and you mm-hmm. realize how fleeting life is and you, you know, and you, and you, you know, you, I, I, I felt I'm grateful that I had that experience. Um, I'm grateful that I had it as a single person with no yeah. children. I mean, I, I was working very close. guy I shared an office with in Baghdad had four kids. He was like in Baghdad. Wow. I used to drive every night from, uh, from 
our office, which was in this palace, actually in one of Saddam's palaces in Baghdad. I would drive from there to this place called the Al Rashid Hotel, which is where we were living. And I, you know, midnight or whenever my day would wrap up, I'd be driving. And we'd have to go through these military checkpoints. And I would give my – at the military checkpoint, I'd give the soldiers on guard at the military checkpoint my cell phone. And I'd leave it with them for the night and then I would just pick it up on the way in the next morning so they could call home to their kids during the night because they had no way, virtually no way oh to communicate. And all those experiences, you just start to think like, you know, I can't imagine it, – it's horrendous trying to do what these people do with spouses and children and – so where where do you think the, the roots of kind of the way that, you know, you've made decisions come from, right? Somebody that you shared a cubicle with at Carlisle would mm-hmm. probably be just as persuasive of trying to tell you you're insane for leaving this job. Where <clears throat> those family values, those something can you can you think back to experiences that you had that, you know, at the time you didn't appreciate but realizing those were formative and and helping you figure out what was important to you? I mean, I would say um First of all, my mother is a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, she's from a small town in Slovakia called Košice. Uh, she was basically a hidden child during the war, and then she was on the run with her mother, and they were saved. She and her mother were saved by righteous Gentiles. Her father did not make it out. He wound up in Auschwitz. They they, they escaped right before they were to be taken to Auschwitz, my mother and her mother, um, and they were on the run. Uh, they came back to Kosice in after the war. Then the communists came in and took over, and they were there from kind of about forty-five to forty-eight, and they left again. And I, I was just so our family between my mother and her siblings, we were the Holocaust was and Jewish survival was a. This is going to sound glib, but it was like a big theme of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. It was just very mm-hmm. present and very heavy. And she told that story. Oh, oh. I, that story, endless. Uh-huh. Those a million stories. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean. My my friends used to joke that the, you couldn't come to our house for dinner without somehow the conversation not reverting to the Holocaust. <laughs> well, because that's not. I actually my what I would have guessed is that those who've survived those sort of traumatic experiences yeah. would hold it up. No. Right? They they cover the numbers on their arm. So so there tends to be. If you, I mean, my sister and I are very familiar with this. We've like studied this. My cousin, all of us are children of survivors. So we've studied, we've looked closely at the different profiles of Holocaust survivors, and they tend to fall in two very distinct camps. One you're describing, which is I'm back, I'm done, it's over, it's, I'm never looking back. Right. I don't want to. And then there are others. And in fact, I have a cousin who I'm very close to, who's like a sibling. Her mother, which is my mother's sister is that model. <laughs> and my mother is was very um she she was open about it. It was a big part. I mean it's just it was we were very aware of it. In fact, so much so that when you know, after Campbell and I were married and we were pregnant with our first child with Eli, um it was very important to me that that Campbell before we had our first kid that we went with my mother back to her hometown. We went with her to Auschwitz. We, it was the first time she'd been there since the war. Um, I wanted like our family to sort of ex- see all that and be close to it. We got into her home that she was taken out of by the Nazis in Kosciuszko. We did all these things. It was almost important to me to do before we started our family. And so it was just – it was a big part of how I grew up. Now, my father was very involved with government, very involved in politics. He worked for the mayor of Utica actually and uh, before he lost his election, Mayor Asaro. Uh, and uh, he and he had served in World War II, and he'd been involved. Number he he 
number of Zion, a bunch of Zionist projects. He worked in Iran for the Joint Distribution Committee before the uh, during the Pahlavi regime, helping the Jewish community there get organized. Um, so my family, I, you ask, where does this come from? I think it comes from my parents. I mean, it's sort of it's cliche to say, but it really did. There was this enormous emphasis on being engaged in the world in my home. There was enormous emphasis on serving in some way, public service of some of some kind. And I would say, lastly, um, there was there was a, a great realization that that so much of the of the risks to the Jewish people. Uh, particularly in the 30s and 40s, uh, many of them I wouldn't say eliminated, but certainly could have been curtailed if American Jewish leaders were more engaged politically mm-hmm. and American Jewish leaders were more prominent and more, um, you know, and had greater access and, and were just more engaged in the world in ways beyond just academia or business or the arts. And so when you say what's the one thing, I, I don't. Those streams, you add all those up together, and I think both my sister and I were felt this, um, you know, this sort of compulsion to to do more than just be in the cubicle at Carlisle. Not there's anything wrong with being in the cubicle at Car- yeah. Carlisle. It's just a different. It's just a different um, ethos. And so your path took you a lot into politics. I mean, taking that into you, you followed your father's footsteps in a yeah. little bit, take, going into politics and giving back by doing politics and and Republican politics, yeah. especially, or I guess entirely. Do you, I mean, for me, I find it very rare to see someone who wears their politics so much on their sleeves and is in business. Yeah. Evan, you might see that yeah, yeah. more. But I'm curious how that how that uh, impacts the way that you do business or, or carry yourself in the world with people knowing that you are so closely aligned with one particular party. Yeah. Um, I, it hasn't, um, I mean, to my knowledge, it hasn't inhibited, inhibited me in any way. I... I, it is true that I'm. I, I believe if people want to be effective in politics and effective in in you know advocacy for for public policy ideas, they have to choose a side, because so many of the debates and the fights over these ideas happen inside the party before they even get to the to the general electorate. And so you have to, if you really want to be relevant, you have to choose a. I tell this to young people all the time when I speak at colleges. I, I would say, I don't care what side you're on. Just pick one, though. That is a personal risk that you're taking, mm-hmm. right? For, forget, there's mm-hmm. no question that people who otherwise feel just as strongly as you do have chosen a different way of expressing it because they feel that there's a implication to them being able to do what they want to do next, right? Because they're too concerned that that is actually going to show up on a YouTube video when their f- potential employer looks back to see whether they're interests align with theirs. Right. This is saying you don't talk about it at the office. You don't exactly. talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. You, and you, you do. You talk about both. Both. Yeah. You're right. There's risk. There's risk to being involved in the war of ideas. I don't know. I, it, I, well, let's I, see, well, I, I don't know anything different. It's like you asked me where right, I come from and right. what I know. This is what I know. So I've just like, marked, I've people... just put one step ahead of the other <laughs> with my life and my career doing it the way I do it. And I, you know. And no do you one... think more people should follow that? When you talk to young people, do you say to them, you have to, your politics. You have to live your politics. You have to be out there with this every day, or, um, or are you really just talking about this kind of idea of getting involved in the war of ideas? Here's what party? I tell people. Um, look, everyone has to make their own decisions. So I don't want to be judgmental or, or, um, or you know, overly sort of preachy or sermonizing. But don't fetch if you're not mm-hmm. willing to get involved. You don't want to be involved. That's fine. But don't 
don't sit there at like when I'm giving a speech and raise your hand with this long five minute fetch about this and the problems that and then you do this and the politician doing that. And it's like, OK, so like what are you doing about it? Right. Well, I can't do anything about it because my. OK, so that's a choice you made. Mm-hmm. But don't yeah. pretend you're so upset about it um, because if you're so upset about it, you do something about it. But you're you're not that upset about it because you may have made a career choice that. OK, so that I don't begrudge you that, but don't. I mean, the complaining without doing to me is like insane. What you're saying is this is for everybody, that you cannot, no matter what line of work you are, no matter what you're doing, if if you you want to complain. If if you care. I thought your line, complaining without doing is insane. Right. You have to, so you've got to do it. Or or give up one of the two. Or just don't complain. Go along with it. Right. I'm not sure you are necessarily the best spokesperson for that Mm -hmm. because it's worked for you. Mm Mm-hmm. But you have other talents that most 22-year-olds don't have, which is the ability to be able to still be persuasive but not inflammatory with Mm -hmm. your points. So it hasn't cost you in terms of, you know, nobody's blackballed you. (laughs) You know, know, you're not not persona non grata at cocktail parties, right? I don't know. I I don't know how much that lesson. To my knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you haven't been invited to our house in a while, but that's I'm not going to read too much into it, yeah. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Is that can you fairly offer that or do you think that you're the exception? First of all, I think there are a number of ways to to get involved. So when I say uh, complaining without doing is insane, there are many ways to do. So, you know, I have chosen to um, to weigh in on debates in a very public and visible way. That's but I. There are many ways to be very involved. I've worked with people who are very involved in political campaigns uh, in very influential roles who don't have a great public role. They put in a ton of time, a ton of energy, uh, dedicate real bandwidth to to the project. But they don't – they are not you know, public debaters. They're not out there writing and publishing and going on TV and arguing. There, so there, there are a number of ways to um, be engaged. Um, so it's – and, and by the way, for what it's worth, I have uh, th- this whole issue of being persuasive without being inflammatory. Um, I, my, my approach to politics, some of this is going to sound funny. So my closest friends are Democrats. No, some of my closest <laughs> friends are Democrats. And I, you know, and, and our. Does your wife count as one of your closest no, friends? No, she's an independent. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, and who, who really see the world different from me. I mean, uh-huh. really philosophical. In some cases, it's, a, you know, just a minor sort of difference, but in many cases, it's like diametric family members. I have a another cousin who is who's also like a sibling. Both these cousins of mine and I kind of grew up together. Who's when I say, I mean, he studied under Howard Zinn. I mean, he's a left wing. You know, he's been involved with left wing politics forever, and we argue and argue and argue, and it's very healthy. But we argue and argue and argue, and it gets very intense sometimes, and we're not very fun to spend the Jewish holidays with because it gets nasty. Um, but When you say you can be persuasive without being inflammatory, I I would formulate it differently. If you're going to argue with someone, if both parties come to the table saying, I totally think your views are crazy and nutty and and I I could not disagree with you more, but I don't question your motives, Mm -hmm. then there's space to have a real discussion. In other words, if you – I think so much of where things become inflammatory – and therefore difficult to have a, a real thought-provoking discussion, at the core is people question one another's motives. Why, you know, there must be some dark reason why you're for what you're for or you're compromised or, you're, you know, there's a conflict and you're... But if, if you just, like, check all that out the door and say, look, 
I don't know where this person comes by these views. I don't care. I'm going to assume it all comes from a good place. I assume we both want the same thing, which is to make the world a better place, you know, make America this great success story that it is, whatever the, you know. And but wow, do we have a different approach to getting at it? And fitting, uh, given your your varied successes and interests, this conversation can go on. on oh, sorry, a lot you know, I, I didn't mean to filibuster. No, you know? it was great, and, yeah. and we'll, uh, we'll we'll have you back because right. so many different topics. We'd love to talk a little bit more about Startup Nation next time. Right, I mean, you can't break the mold in just one interview. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, I know the breaking—it's like it takes a few sessions. That's right. Right? You just cracked yeah. it. Maybe right. a small yeah. circle. Right. Right. Dan Sinor, thank pleasure. you so much. Thanks, for guys. Time. Thanks. And we'll be right back. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. And welcome back to Breaking the Mold. We're in our wrap-up session here now after a fascinating show, exploring WhatsApp and then exploring Dan Senor. So, Dan, if I, I think about I'm in Olympic mode right now, and I, I think about Dan as a decathlete in that, that he has been able to be successful in so many different areas where the types of skills that it takes to be successful are not necessarily translatable and fungible between them. Being good in media does not mean being good in finance. Being good in politics does not mean necessarily being good in media. As many of our politicians, we've learned the hard way about how how poor they are when it comes to media behavior. But Dan seems to be that. The one knock on decathletes is that they actually couldn't win a medal in any of the single sports. In essence, they are a jack of all trades, but master of none. And I thought Dan disproved that in many ways, clearly by the way in which he's been able to take his career in every direction he's gone in has actually led to a successful outcome. That clearly means that where he is now, which is a reset, given that um, when you um, attach yourself to a politician who then doesn't uh, win, you have a chance to kind of look back and decide what you want to do from there, from here. But if you think of everything that's happened up until now, his ability to be successful is really a rare, rare, rare feat. And it's one of the things that, as I mentioned during my discussion with him, I felt like makes him not necessarily the best spokesperson to be able to give advice to 22-year-olds. Not that they, not that they wouldn't want to follow in his footsteps. The question about whether what he has is. A, a, a skill that other people can master, I think, is still hard. I thought it was very fascinating, the, the almost PTSD that he'd gone through kind of post-Iraq and the 15 months of being there. Not necessarily because he didn't talk about the death experience or sort of the violence. Talked about the normal, what was normal in Iraq versus what was normal in the U.S. and the re-entry difficulties that he had. That, you know, to, hearing people complain about that their coffee wasn't made right. I do wonder how long that lasts. That was an experience he had 10 years ago, but he spoke about it as though it had happened just yesterday. And I think if you go, you know, and talk with veterans about kind of what their experience was like, there being the reason that you go and do second and third tours of duty, even after having those sort of experiences, is because nothing else just seems quite quite as meaningful. Dan has managed to certainly find plenty of meaning in his life through his family, through the work that he's he's doing in politics, through the work that he's doing in business. And so we will uh, follow Dan's career uh, very closely here at Breaking the Mold. Entertaining time uh, together. Please, of course, feel free to email me any comments, suggestions, questions. We are reached at btmshow at icloud.com. For Breaking the Mold, this is Evan Roth. It's business. It's business time.
been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.